the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to share an interview of the week with Peter Yashek. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. It's not just a book about being in prison. It's a book about his actually having been in prison for a period of 400 plus days with ISIS. He'll be joining us later this hour. So I hope you'll join us. And uh, we're going to spend the second uh, half of the show. We're going to talk about the lighter side of the news. So we're looking forward to uh, to that. We'll refresh the headlines and then take a look at the, uh, the lighter side. And yeah, there actually was some even this week. First, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, New York City police officers were seen clashing with demonstrators in another night of mass gatherings on Thursday after a citywide curfew took effect with law enforcement out in force in an attempt to keep the peace and prevent violence that's marred otherwise peaceful demonstrations over the death of George Floyd. Large gatherings began throughout the day around the country. Hundreds of mourners packed an emotional memorial service in Minneapolis on Thursday to honor Floyd, whose death while in police custody last week has ignited a firestorm of criticism of law enforcement agencies over police brutality. In Southern California, Washington, D.C., and other parts of the country, thousands attended vigils in honor of Floyd. Still, multiple cities nationwide have imposed curfews in an attempt to prevent widespread rioting and looting that has mostly occurred after dark. New York has seen some of the worst violence since protests began more than a week ago. On Wednesday, a police officer was stabbed in the neck. Two others were shot. Thousands remain in the streets Thursday after the city's 8 p.m. curfew took effect, as well as large numbers of police officers in the Bronx. Officers were seen clashing and aggressively charging toward demonstrators in an attempt an apparent attempt to keep the crowd under control. Other videos appear to show the NYPD arresting curfew violators en masse, threatening protesters with jail and wielding batons at them. Many of the demonstrators have accused the department of aggressively enforcing the city's curfew and engaging in the same uh, militaristic behavior they are protesting against. Well, they shouldn't be surprised that the police are going to attempt to enforce uh, the curfew. Uh, anyway, the uh, meanwhile, in St. Louis, hundreds gathered to call for criminal justice reforms. The city has seen a fair share of violence in recent days, seeing four police officers shot and a retired police captain killed while trying to protect a pawn shop from looters this week. In Chicago, rapper Kanye West marched with Chicago public school students to demand the school district end its $33 million contract with the Chicago Police Department. In Los Angeles County, officials, including Los Angeles uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti, they lifted a countywide curfew order on Thursday. However, some cities chose to keep their orders in place out of caution. The lawyer representing a journalist who is suing the far-left group Antifa said on Thursday the legal action seeks to protect reporters and other Americans who are threatened by these criminals. Harmeet Dillon of the Center for American Liberty said she filed the first-ever lawsuit against Antifa on behalf of journalist Andy No, who, after he was reportedly attacked in 2019 while covering the violence incited by the group here in Portland. 
On one occasion, the lawsuit claims Snow was beaten by a mob that continued to harass him as he attempted to walk away. In an appearance on Ingram Angle Thursday, Dillon told to host Laura Ingram that No continues to be stalked and claimed the Portland authorities continue to do nothing to protect his safety. Earlier Thursday, Dillon, again the attorney, told Fox News the timing of the lawsuit was unrelated to the riots that have taken place across the country following the death of George Floyd. Her comments came as FBI Director Christopher Wray announced that Antifa was among the groups being investigated for acts of violence in various cities over the past several days. And President Trump continued his war of words against former Secretary of Defense James Mattis on Thursday, tweeting a letter purportedly written by his former attorney John Dowd that attacked Mattis for criticizing Trump's response to ongoing protests. The letter knocks Mattis' military service and suggests he let hack politicians abuse his reputation. Dowd, a retired Marine judge advocate who Trump called the superstar lawyer, served as Trump's lead counsel in the Russian investigation before resigning in March of 2018. I slept on your statement and woke up appalled and upset, Dowd wrote. You lost me. Never dreamed you would be you would let a bunch of hack politicians use your good name and reputation earned with the blood and guts of young Marines. You did what you said you wouldn't engage in this discord. Marines keep their word. Navy vet Michael White back in the U.S. after uh, release from Iran detention is happy to be home. Uh, former Vice President Biden and uh, presumptive uh, Democratic presidential candidate claims that 10 to 15 percent of Americans are just not very good people. 10 to 15 percent of Americans. Now, you would assume he would exclude Democrats, and that would be about um, 40 million. That's about the number of people in the Republican Party. Sort of another version of the basket of deplorables by his uh, pre- the woman who preceded him in this race, Hillary Clinton. J.C. Penney's is shutting down 154 stores after coronavirus-driven bankruptcy. Uh, Joe Biden has uh, long prided himself on being a union-friendly Democrat with a good relationship, says the story in a recent uh, Politico article, a good relationship with rank-and-file cops. But Biden calls Biden's call for more national policing reforms and oversight in the wake of the death of George Floyd and the perception that he hasn't shown enough solidarity with law enforcement amid the ensuing nationwide protests and unrest have created a fissure with law enforcement groups, leaving many who have created a who once rather supported him with frustration by what they uh, regard as political posturing by their one-time ally. We'll see if that translates into election support. Ed Morrissey points out that his realignment with their uh, critics puts their support at risk, most likely in the swing states Biden needs to carry. And the New York's ta- New York Times rather is changing the process. Uh, that they use to avoid conservative op-eds because their readers find it offensive to hear a point of view that is not their own. They called the effort by Senator Tom Cotton an op-ed that did not meet our standard. Again, that standard being our point of view. So they are promising changes so no opposing opinions slip into these far-left pages. Well, Tom Cotton uh, wrote, In the face of the woke mob of woke kids uh, that are in their newsroom, they tucked tail, and they ran. Eric Erickson of the same said, the bedwetters at the New York Times can't handle a United States senator expressing an opinion shared by 58% of the nation. And the uh, poll backing Erickson's uh, is 58, uh, uh, I should say, the uh, poll backing Erickson's um, be real comment, um, they actually reduce the number of opposing opinions uh, they'll run because the journalists they employ complained about hearing opposing opinions. You might never convince me that it's real. That's uh, Seth Mandel in a uh, tweet. Well, Nancy Pelosi 
asked what she thought of it, said uh, to wait to see what Democrats release next week in response to uh, the denunciation of the defund police um, mantra. Chuck Schumer is proud of the protests in New York where riots and looting have led to a curfew. Minneapolis Council President has said time to dismantle the police department. Now think about that for a moment. Dismantle law enforcement altogether. From the Minneapolis Council President, yes, we are going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department and replace it with a transformative new model of public safety. Dan McLaughlin said good luck disbanding the Minneapolis PD when it has a collectively a collective bargaining contract. Byron York says maybe it's time for some um, enterprising blue state municipality to go bold and to eliminate its police force. See what happens. I shudder to consider what might happen, particularly in view of the fact that the vast majority of law enforcement does a great job. Facing ADF lawsuit, the state of Oregon has relaxed restrictions on churches. Nine days after the Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys, they uh, filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of two Oregon churches. Governor Kate Brown here in the state of Oregon has issued new COVID-19 guidelines that relaxes restrictions on churches and church gatherings. The June 4th guidance revises the state's public health ordinance to no longer treat churches worse than secular venues, such as dine-in restaurants or gyms. And from the Washington Post, stop all favorable cop shows and movies, they suggest. Uh, From the story, there's something Hollywood can do to put its money where its social media posts are, immediately halt production of cop shows and movies, and rethink the stories it tells about policing in America. That's what the Washington Post is suggesting, even if those stories are also true. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We have an interview with Peter Jasek. He's the author of Imprisoned with ISIS. He didn't just write the book. He lived it while in prison for, I believe, 445 days in um, prison, surrounded by ISIS. We'll give you an opportunity to hear his story when he joins us to talk about his book, Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. December 10th, 2015 is a day that my guest, Peter Yashik, will never forget. He was in Khartoum, Sudan, ready to go home to his wife and children in the Czech Republic when he was forcefully detained by airport security and accused of being a spy. Well, that was only the start of his prison journey. Because of his work helping persecuted believers in Sudan through Voice of the Martyrs, he was imprisoned in Sudan with very little food, no real medical care, yet his faith in God was stronger than ever. But the challenges were mounting. He's uh, made record of that experience in his latest book to be released tomorrow, Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. And this story that releases on the 2nd of June, he tells that story, the opposition he faced no matter where he turned, who his roommates were, and how God came alongside and strengthened him through this challenge. Well, my guest, Peter Yashik, is the son of a pastor who was persecuted in communist Czechoslovakia, as well as equipped to join the Voice of the Martyrs in 2002 to help persecuted Christians in hostile areas and restricted nations. Today, Peter serves with Voice of the Martyrs as their global ambassador, traveling around the world to speak about his imprisonment in Sudan and encouraging believers to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in prayer and in action. We are so uh, thankful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, everybody. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let's uh, let's go back and talk a little bit about the nation of Sudan at the time the events that you write about took place. 
Um, describe for us the persecution that Sudanese believers were facing. If you visit the country of Sudan, if you would have visited that uh, country at that time, you know, you would have, uh, you would, could uh, get easily the false impression, you know, that uh, there is a certain level of uh, freedom because you would see churches from various denominations, you would go see people going in and coming out. Uh, but uh, the major problem starts when uh, the person uh, would uh, follow Christ's great commission, which means to make disciples of all people, uh, including the Muslim majority. You know, otherwise, if uh, Christians just um, uh, had uh, were practicing their Christian life inside the churches, uh, they could live uh, more or less a free life. You know, they were certainly experiencing some persecution, especially if they were not wealthy enough to send their children to uh, private schools. They would have to memorize Quran with the Muslim fellow students. Uh, they would suffer uh, some persecution, uh, you know, from the employees. Uh, I mean, employers, because, you know, the uh, em Christian employees would always um, have more difficulties uh, to find jobs, uh, you know, compared to their Muslim neighbors. Uh, but the major problem started when Christians um, uh, started to share the gospel with uh, their uh, Muslim fellow neighbors, which is illegal even now in Sudan. Uh, and at that time, was um, highly, uh, they were highly persecuted for that. And, uh, you know, I heard about that persecution uh, when I attended a conference in uh, Ethiopia in October 2015. And I uh, heard compelling testimonies, you know, exactly of uh, what happens when there is a person like a Muslim background believer. You know, it is illegal mm -hmm. still now, and it was illegal at that time, uh, to convert from Islam to any other religion. And I heard, I saw pictures of an injured uh, young Muslim background believer student that, uh, you know, became a believer during his studies in Khartoum University. And I also saw pictures of churches, uh, uh, church buildings completely demolished just because their pastors were actively encouraging their church members to follow Christ's Great Commission. So that was what brought me there at that time. And unfortunately, the situation is still very similar, even though, you know, we hear some news about some changes, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, President Bashir was removed by... You should know that the situation is also, uh, you know, very interesting, because the guy who led the coup uh, was um, uh, Ibn Uf, which was a cousin of uh, President Bashir and married to his daughter. So what can you expect, you know, what uh, can, what good can come out of this uh, uh, coup, you know, and then the power was handed over to people that were very cruel, uh, that are actually on the list of the ICC as uh, wanted criminals. In your book, you point out that for three decades, the Sudanese government had targeted Christians along with those who aren't ethnically Arab for extermination. So this was extermination. That is the, the most extreme. Uh, and since the uh, former president um, rose to power in 1989 through a military coup and established a strict form of Islamic law throughout the country, his brutal regime intimidated, arrested, imprisoned, and tortured Christians. You had traveled there as a representative of uh, voice of the Martyrs, to meet with persecuted Christians, to do research. What was the purpose of your trip that was only expected to take four days? 
Yeah, you know, I uh, you should um, understand that when I visited countries uh, restricted, like country of Sudan, I could not come as an official representative of uh, mm -hmm. the organization called VOM because, you know, I always had to come uh, secretly, you know, unnoticed, you know, like a tourist because if they would know that there is uh, someone who wants to document uh, the persecution of Christians, they would immediately probably ban me from entering the country. So uh, yeah, I had good plan for these four days. I had secret meetings. I had uh, uh, everything carefully prepared. But of course, you know, in country of Sudan, it was not very difficult uh, to uh, follow a Westerner, you know, in the country that has, uh, you know, so many secret policemen, uh, uh, you know, that are work secret policemen that are uh, going back and forth, you know, they're monitoring the foreigners that's very easy for them to monitor and of course i could expect that but uh, i w i thought that you know my mission was completed i have uh, uh, accomplished what i wanted i met and interviewed the uh, injured muslim background believer i also uh, visited the sites of the demolished churches even though it was uh, it had to be at night and i could not uh, uh, take photos because, uh, you know, with the flash I would be immediately noticed. But I had that good, uh, you know, feeling that my mission was completed, but uh, only when I was holding the boarding passes in my hand, that was the moment when I got arrested by secret police. Now, the, the pictures and the material that you just described, I understand they were encrypted on your computer, so they would not be easily accessed. When you were um, arrested at the airport, what were you told you were being charged with? What was the purpose of that arrest? I was not uh, told much uh, when I was arrested in the airport because, you know, uh, those people spoke very poor English. You know, I tried French, uh, German, Russian, you know, all the languages that I speak. And my Arabic at that time was not fluent, so I could not speak in Arabic. Uh, but, uh, you know, they just wanted my computer, my laptop, my cell phone, my camera, video camera. So I've understood, you know, that they wanted to search it, and I didn't want to give them passwords for that, so eventually, you know, um, my uh, the time before the departure was getting shorter, and uh, it was obvious that I will miss that flight, and then I was uh, transferred to the headquarters of the secret police, and then they started the proper interrogation, you know, with the person who spoke uh, good English, and then I understood that they were monitoring me, you know, my activities. And of course, you know, um, if you delete some stuff from your laptop, you know, which I or from your camera, you know, it is obvious that uh, um, that was probably my mistake that I didn't do properly because I was supposed to overwrite the empty space uh, after the deleting the files, you know, uh, especially in my camera with the special software that I had available at the time. But uh, I just deleted them. I did not anticipate such a detailed scrutiny of uh, of my memory card, and of course, you know, then uh, you, uh, if you have some other memory cards or sticks or uh, external hard drives, you know, if if it's something that is empty, unless it is uh, rewritten or reformatted or with a special program, uh, there can be always something uh, digged out of it, and that was actually the case. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, uh, this afternoon, we're talking with my guest, 
Peter Yashek. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is available tomorrow, published by Salem Books. Quick break. We'll be back to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Yashek. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. It's not just a book. It is his story told in some detail to give you some indication of what persecuted believers face um, when the enemy captures them and uh, experience imprisonment. Now, you had come to uh, minister to and to learn more about persecuted believers in Sudan. You had just become, as you told us before the break, you had just become one of those persecuted believers. Tell us about your first experience when you were ultimately imprisoned and who your uh, fellow cellmates were. You know, I was after nearly 24 hours interrogation in the headquarters of the Sikhi police, I was uh, transferred to the first prison. You know, I went through five different prisons in Sudan, but the, of course, the first one was uh, the first negative experience with being imprisoned, you know, in a foreign country. And that prison was the prison of the secret police. And uh, even though the conditions uh, were very bad, you know, and there was uh, a lot of uh, humidity, mold and uh, insects and kinds of uh, uh, things that were very unpleasant, you know, the, uh, what was much more uh, unpleasant was actually that I found found out uh, the next uh, morning, you know, that I'm actually imprisoned with six members of Islamic State. And I found it very easily because, you know, they asked me about uh, uh, some of the events, you know, what is going on in the world. These people are actually completely cut off from all information from uh, the outside world. There's no radio, no newspaper, no television. And uh, when I told them, you know, that what happened about uh, three weeks before my time in prison, you know, when uh, in f- Paris, uh, during uh, coordinated attacks of Islamic State, uh, uh, 129 people died, were killed actually by Muslim extremists. Uh, they interrupted me and they uh, burst uh, bursted in a mm. celebration uh, of uh, shouting Allahu Akbar for several minutes and uh, hugging each other, rejoicing that 100. 29 infidels got killed. That was the moment when I realized that I am amidst of these ISIS people. And of course, later on, they um, clearly identify themselves. I got uh, more information about each individual. You know, how, uh, what did they do? You know, um, for instance, you know, there were a Libyan guy who at the age of uh, 12 was sent by his father to be a person, a bodyguard of Osama bin Laden. You know, and this guy was uh, treated with high respect from the other people, and uh, they used to call him a man of sword. And I actually thought that it was this was the title was because of his work with Os- uh, Osama bin Laden. But only when he after he was transferred uh, to other cell, I found out that the true reason of him being called a man of sword was not being bodyguard of Osama, but being a member of the uh, you know squad that actually beheaded the 20 Coptic Egyptian Christians and one African Christian on the Libyan shore in February of 2015, just a few months before he was with me in the same cell. You know, I could say he, you know, in, in a, f- a figurative way that he still had the fresh human blood on his hands. And that was very shocking, you know, and not only that, but there were some other conditions like, you know, I have lost 
um, in the first three months, uh, uh, 55 pounds of my body weight. You know, I after one month, they uh, realized that I was actually, when I was transferred to the hospital, that I lost half of my blood. And being heavily anemic and malnutrition, that made the whole um, life in this business cell with the ISIS guys a lot more complicated and hard. And th then now, now I come, you know, to the point that I realized, you know, and um, my major concern at first was not that I would die in this prison, uh, but that I would l rather lose my sound mind. Because, you know, I was witnessing not only a five times per day prayers, but I could not have a Bible. They could have Korans. They were reading Korans, uh, uh, you know, the whole day if they were not sleeping or eating. Uh, and uh, all of that, you know, was um, kind of, you know, uh, war I was worried that I may lose my sound mind. And I started to pray and ask the Lord, you know, please keep my mind sound. You know, I was not that much surprised that I am in prison because, you know, I consider, based on what the Bible teaches about persecution, that persecution is actually an essential part of a Christian life. The Lord Jesus was preparing his followers that they will be persecuted, and he didn't promise them that always they will be released from persecution like I was. Uh, he said even some of you will be killed. You know, when you read what Paul was teaching his followers, and he said, uh, everyone who wants to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's in 2 Timothy 3.12. So I was teaching others and encouraging others uh, that the persecution is an essential part of the Christian life, so how could I be surprised? But of course, you know, when day uh, by day, week by week, months by month, you know, I started to ask the Lord, how long, Lord, how long I will have to be in this prison? Mm. Uh, in addition to being housed in the same cell, a cell that, as you describe it, was really intended for an individual, but there were several of you there. So the condition in of itself was unbearable. But you were tortured regularly uh, at the glee of your ISIS, um, your Islamic State uh, cellmates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it started with uh, my freedom being of movement in this cell that was very crowded. I know it sounds a little bit strange, you know, how could you move, but you can still move in the small space. You know, I was uh, not allowed to cross, uh, you know, when they were, they were walking from one end to the other end. Uh, I was not allowed to speak on my own. I only had, uh, I was supposed to answer their questions. And uh, later on, they started to slander me with bad words. I was not called Peter anymore by them. I was called, you know, Khinzir, in which in Arabic means a filthy pig. And uh, they call me filthy pig, come here, filthy pig, go there, you know, so that was like that, or filthy rat. And uh, shortly after that, they started to uh, slap my face, beat me with their fist to my face, uh, uh, or later on, they used a wooden stick and they uh, were beating me with the wooden stick, or they were kicking me with their shoes, with their legs, with their shoes on, and uh, or they try to invent um, uh, ways uh, how to make my position very uncomfortable that I, when I was released from that position I could not walk I could not stand because of the pain you know after being in a very uncomfortable position for a long time but that all was the moment you know when I realized that uh, you know the words of Apostle Paul that he says in um, uh, 2 Corinthians 12:10. he says when I am weak, 
then I am strong. So when we reach uh, the bottom of our physical or emotional strength, uh, then we can experience the Lord's strength. And I was able to pray for those people. I was able to, um, you know, even turn my other cheek when they were beating me. And I can honestly tell you, it was not me who was able to turn the other cheek. It was actually Christ in me who was able to turn the other cheek to them and also to share the gospel with them. And, I, you know, I was experiencing such a moment of peace, you know, even when, especially actually when I was being beaten by them. And their um, effort to, uh, they always came, you know, with new ways of uh, torturing me. And eventually they came with the idea that they will do the waterboarding on me. And, uh, you know, they uh, made everything ready for that. You know, they even convinced the guards to move uh, seven of us from our cell where there was no running water to the other cell, the only cell actually on that floor that had running water so that they could do the waterboarding. You know, they prepared some cloth, you know, that they could cover my face with and when everything was ready uh, on that morning you know uh, the lord intervened in the last moment but i have learned was being with these guys you know one other big lesson you know the power of prayer you know i was amidst of my enemies literally not knowing when they will slap me kick me or uh, use the fist to my face or use the wooden stick and, uh, you know, after all the, the five days prayers in the evening, you know, I could say that the nightlife started in the cell. And, uh, you know, they could stay awake till maybe 2 a.m. talking, you know, with each other. And, of course, you know, I was very tired. And at 9 p.m., I was able to peacefully lay down and fall asleep. Uh, and I was amazed, you know, uh, why am I able to fall asleep amidst of my enemies? And that happened every night. And only two months later, when I started to receive letters from my family, I found out why I was able to fall asleep. You know, in my home church, People were praying for me. They were fasting. And especially, you know, at 8 p.m., Czech Republic winter time, uh, people who uh, applied for this uh, special prayer application, you know, their cell phones started to ring with reminders, prayers for Peter. And for one hour, these people went on their knees in the place where they were. And for one hour, they were fervently praying for me. And oh, now the most God. important thing is that the time difference between Czech Republic in winter and Sudan was one hour. So actually, people were praying for 9 p.m. Sudanese time till 10 p.m. And that was the time when I could fall asleep as a result of their fervent and faithful prayers. Praise God. We're going to continue our conversation. Once again, we're talking with Peter Yashik. He is the author of Imprisoned with Isis, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books. We're going to find out more about how God attended to him during this season of persecution. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Yashik. He is the author of Imprisoned with ISIS, 
Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books and will be available uh, tomorrow. So I would encourage you, if you'd like to understand more about what it is like to be in the presence of one's enemies in a, as a believer being persecuted and what role God plays and his people play in the midst of all of that, this is an excellent book to, uh, uh, to read again available tomorrow. You mentioned that during this time in which you are housed with these ISIS members, they had made the decision that they were going to waterboard you, had managed to uh, move from the cell that you had been in to one where there was running water. Um, but you were rescued out of that situation. Uh, and one might find it difficult to see solitary confinement as a rescue. But d- tell us a little bit about uh, your transfer into solitary confinement and whether or not you were able to ultimately have a copy of God's word. Yeah, you know, when I was uh, taken out of the cell, I had this feeling like when Daniel was uh, taken out from the lion's den. Literally, there was the only difference that, you know, the uh, Lord has kept the mouth of the lions shut and their mouths were widely open when I was taken from their midst. They could not believe that I was taken away. And the next day, was actually, I was punished by being put in solitary confinement, which in one sense, you know, it is considered like a punishment in any prison. And even the ISIS people were afraid of being put into the solitary confinement. You know, one of them told me that he was there for five days and he said, if they would not have released me, I would lose my mind, uh, sound mind. And I said to myself, you know, in one sense, for me, it was the first moment when I had actually uh, free time to uh, speak out loud, to pray out loud, and to walk around. And for me, I considered that moment, the day when I was put on the solitary confinement, like the first liberation inside mm. of the country. Of course, I haven't been tortured by the guards uh, through, uh, they were fr- uh, blowing freezing air on uh, um, in, into my cell, and uh, they took uh, my blanket away from me. So I was literally freezing, but I could experience the Lord's physical presence, you know, like a, mm-hmm. you know, warm coat around me in one moment and uh, spontaneously the words of my mouth were my Lord and my God, because, you know, I have felt, you know, that the Lord was with me in the cell and even my memory started to return and I was able to uh, start uh, even singing, you know, one song, you know, and that was the song, Thine Be the Glory, you know, this is actually a hymn, you know, that I have memorized when I was probably 15 or 16. 16 years old, and I could not remember the words of this song uh, when I was uh, heavily anemic and malnourished <clears throat> in the first uh, uh, two months uh, being with the ISIS people, because you know my memory was not working normally. When you're uh, when you lose that my that much blood, you know your uh, brain doesn't work normally. But in that moment when I was for the first night in the solitary confinement, freezing from the cold, you know, uh, my memory w- uh, came back and I could start singing this hymn, Thine Be the Glory, you know, and the first two verses and the third one came about maybe th- two or three days later. I'm sure, you know, that the guards and maybe even the ISIS people, when they heard me singing the whole night, they thought that I got mad the first night in this solitary confinement already. So that was an amazing moment. And, you know, I was, for the first four months, I was praying, and my only prayer was to 
uh, be released and to go home. And uh, then I was transferred to another prison, uh, and, uh, uh, and and the conditions were much worse there. You know, we were f- maybe sometimes 50 people squeezed in the small room without a toilet, you know, that had maybe 25 uh, square meters. And one night, the Lord has brought another 12 Eritrean refugees and I was led by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with them. That was such a clear guidance of the Holy Spirit that I have experienced, uh, I would say, rarely in my life. But that night it was so obvious. So I went squeezed through the a crowd of people to them, and I shared the gospel to them. And on that night, the Lord has touched their hearts, and they all were ready to receive Christ. So I, I encouraged them to pray with me, and they all did, and all 12 of them committed their lives to Christ. And that was a turning point for me. Mm. From that moment, I really understood that I had to be in prison exactly four months and one day. Why? Because these people needed to hear the gospel oh, from me. And that changed my whole perspective, you know, on being in prison. And another month later, you know, I <clears throat> was another, because, you know, this uh, encouraged me to share the gospel even with the uh, fellow Muslims after these uh, uh, 12 Eritrean refugees on the next morning, they were actually transferred to the uh, next uh, another prison, and I could not see them anymore. Uh, but I started to share the gospel with all the other people, even the Muslims, right? And they, <clears throat> uh, I was punished by the guards again by being put in solitary confinement. But that was all in pre- prepared by the Lord. And when I was transferred to the solitary confinement a week later, I have received the most precious gift in my life. You know, the the representative of the Czech embassy came to visit me and he brought me the Czech Bible. So I was holding the word of God after five months of, of not having it. And I was so hungry after the word of God that I immediately started to read, you know, just standing at the window when the daylight was coming in and I could read from uh, 8 in the morning, maybe till 5 p.m., but I finished reading the Bible within three weeks, from Genesis to Revelation. That just documents how hungry I was after the Word of God. You spent 445 days in prison. Um, what you may not have known during that time was that there were those who were praying for you as well as those who were advocating on your behalf for your release. What happened that ultimately resulted in your being released from prison? And looking back, how do you interpret all of these events? First of all, I would like to say that uh, we know that the Lord Jesus is the one who, when he opens, no one can close. When he closes, no one can open. So I um, uh, give the credit to the Lord for, you know, his timing and his sovereign will. You know, when readers will read the book from the first pages, they will realize how the Lord was miraculously preparing me for that time two and a half years before this experience, right. right? And I was already shared that how I felt and I how well late uh, two months later, how I found out 
why could I fall asleep peacefully when people were praying for me? So I was aware that people were praying for me. You know, later on, I was even aware that many people were uh, not only praying, but they were doing certain activities. They were signing online petition, you know, the uh, civic organization called Citizen Go, based in Spain, you know, and they has a worldwide network. They organized a petition of, uh, you know, for our release, and that petition had uh, nearly half a million of signatures uh, from mm. various countries. You know that also the European uh, Parliament issued the resolution uh, demanding uh, uh, our release. You know, when I was uh, in prison already for nearly one year. Uh, the European Parliament issued a resolution demanding our release. And, uh, you know, I was uh, considered like being a spy of Czech Republic, but when the European Parliament issued this uh, resolution demanding our release, I was actually reclassified as a spy of the European Union. So that had this kind of uh, uh, interesting impact. But for us, knowing, you know, that uh, even from letters or from contacts with our families, it was tremendously encouraging uh, to know that not only that people were praying for us, but also they were doing some activities. Uh, they were not silent. They were writing letters to uh, Sudanese embassies around the world. And of course, you know, uh, I have not received those letters that were sent uh, either to me directly to prison. I only received letters sent through the lawyer or through my family. But uh, the fact uh, that we knew about the uh, body of Christ, about the church around the world that were praying uh, for us and demanding our release was extremely encouraging. I remember, you know, that when I found out about uh, my home church uh, uh, and their prayers that actually caused me to be able to fall asleep at 9 p.m. every time, I was actually convicted by the Holy Spirit, you know, how frequently someone asked me for prayers. And I said this kind of uh, usual typical Christian social phrase, you know, yes, yes, I will keep you in my prayers, but I was not uh, literally faithfully doing that. So I made this commitment when I will be released from prison, I will do this faithfully. And not only that, I will also encourage many other Christians in the free countries to pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted or who are in prison. And of course, you know, I uh, knew that persecution is an essential part of the Christian life. But when, you know, I was already in prison like maybe uh, seven months, you know, I was um, silently maybe feeling sorry for myself that I'm already in prison for seven months. But the Lord showed me before my spiritual eyes, you know, the pictures of three Eritrean pastors that have been in prison, two of them in 2004, one of them in 2005. So they were already 11 or 12 years in prison. And I was feeling feeling sorry for myself, you know, that I'm in prison seven months. So after this experience, I deliberately started to pray for them and not only for them, for other Christians, you know, my uh, prison uh, cell walls were actually divided into different segments where I have 
visualize, you know, some people from various countries, from China, from Nigeria, from Eritrea or Central Asia. And I was uh, praying faithfully for them uh, because I and that actually helped me to uh, experience and view my burden as an easy one compared to what they had to go through because of their persecution. Mm. Well, once again, the book is titled Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. The book is published by Salem Books and is available for purchase tomorrow. I wish we had more time because there's so much more that could be said about your experience that challenges all of us to take seriously our connection with believers who are suffering persecution for their faith and our connection with them, that we have the opportunity to superintend, to pray for them. Uh, and to intercede for them. Uh, Peter Yashek, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. God bless thank you. Thank you. You too. Again, the book is titled Imprisoned with ISIS, Faith in the Face of Evil. Uh, I would highly encourage you to read the book to gain an understanding of what many of our brothers and sisters are facing for the sake of and the cause of Christ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Want to refresh some of the day's headlines, but also want to remind you that James ben- Blend, I can't even speak his name. I'm just so excited. James Blend will join me in our next couple of segments. We'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. I hope you can stick around for that. Well, six a day. That's the number of New York police officers resigning, and it's rising. From Jazz Shaw, it's not, and this is uh, Twitter, it's not just disastrous for morale and manpower. It's going to turn New York City into a literal escape from New York if it continues. Meanwhile, the Federalist points out that uh, in the particular case of George Floyd, there is an obvious answer. At least two cops should have lost their jobs long before the event even occurred. George Chauvin, the officer who knelt on Floyd's neck for more than eight minutes, had previously received 20 complaints, that's up from the 18 I'd heard before, filed against him, resulting in two letters of reprimand. His partner, uh, Thao Tao, uh, was sued in 2017 for stopping a man without cause and beating him in the street. In both cases, their contracts protected them. We talked about that earlier in the week. That would go a long way to addressing bad cops when they exist. Well, some students at UCLA, they dox and demand the firing of a professor for failing to cancel their, fi- their uh, final exams. The UCLA students wanted the exams canceled so they could mourn the death of George Floyd. However, the professor... They're paying to teach them, said no. Well, the first black coach to win a Super Bowl has backed Drew Brees, right, to say what he does. Uh, We have to, and this is uh, Tony Dungy, we have to have Drew Brees saying what he said. I don't downgrade Drew for that, okay? That's what he said. He may not totally understand. It may have been not exactly the way he wanted to express it, but he can't be afraid to say that, and we can't be afraid to say, okay, Drew, I don't agree with you, but let's talk about this, and let's sit down and talk about it. We can't just say anytime something happens and we don't agree with it, hey, I'm done with that, and I'm done with uh, this person. That doesn't make sense. We have to do better than that. Again, that's a quote from Tony Dungy. You can find that uh, quote in its entirety at Red State. 26 Oregon counties uh, will move into a second phase of reopening, according to Oregon Governor Kate Brown. She announced on Thursday marking the latest step to restoring the semblance of 
daily life and allowing more Oregonians to return to work with the pandemic. The list of counties allowed to ease restrictions on Friday, Saturday or Monday stretches across the state, the state rather, from rural eastern Oregon to southern Oregon and even into parts of southern Willamette Valley. The looser rules mean restaurants and bars can stay open later, bowling alleys and movie theaters can reopen and churches can welcome in more people. But three counties that sought approval, Deschutes, Jefferson and Umatilla, were not immediately approved to reopen, but could be as soon as, well, tonight. Seven others, largely in the Portland and Salem areas, have not yet applied. Any reopening comes with risk, Brown said in a statement. That's just a fact of life right now. We need to reduce the risk that comes with reopening. So, fellow Oregonians, you have further opportunity to show that you are looking out for your neighbors, your friends, and your families. Well, eight Oregon zip codes uh, have had the most coronavirus infections, Um, Seasonal farm workers in Fairview drove the single largest increase in identified coronavirus infections across the state last week. Newly released statistics from the Oregon Health Authority show the zip code 97024 in Fairview recorded 39 new infections in the week ending Sunday, raising the total to 72 since the pandemic began. The Health Authority announced last week that an outbreak tied to Townsend Farms seasonal workers had infected dozens. The fruit company has has, uh, properties in Fairview and Cornelius. At least 35 people have been infected in Fairview as part of that outbreak, according to Uh, The state report released on Thursday. Seven other zip codes across Oregon recorded at least 10 new infections, two locations in Salem, one area of East Portland, one area of North Portland, part of Hillsborough, Warm Springs and Woodburn. The eight locations accounted for about 44 percent of the 294 new infections that can be tracked by zip code in the state's latest weekly report. The report is based on 4,302 confirmed or presumed infections, State health officials do not um, disclose precise zip code tallies for areas with one to nine cases. Well, beginning today, people in 31 Oregon counties will be eligible to return to work in offices, have larger parties in large religious congregations, uh, play tennis and stay at bars and restaurants until midnight, the governor said on Wednesday. At a video press conference, uh, the governor announced that the first batch of applications to uh, go into phase two, the lifting of COVID-19 restrictions, uh, would be announced on Thursday. They were, and now we see what's happening. Well, under the new rules, the approved counties in Oregon could allow employees to return to their offices and workplaces, though telecommuting is still strongly recommended when possible. Restaurants and bars can stay open until midnight instead of the current 10 p.m. They will now allow outdoor gatherings of up to 100 people, up to 50 people in an indoor uh, gathering, as long as there are 35 square feet of uh, space allotted for each person. Large venues, including churches and theaters, could have up to 250 people at the same time, depending on the size of their facility. The return of some sports, such as bowling and swimming, but with social distancing rules in place, equipment sharing should be minimized. Collegiate sports teams can begin training while limiting the number of participants and contact. I wonder how they're going to do that with football. Uh, New guidelines for reopening gardens, museums and zoos. Uh, Only Multnomah County, which includes Portland, has yet to move to phase one, which allows small groups to gather in restaurants to offer limited sit down service, among other actions. Uh, Allen said that the initial lifting of some restrictions under phase one on May the 15th uh, had not caused a spike in cases in the state of Oregon. So that's uh, that's good news. Meanwhile, protests continued across the state of Oregon on Thursday, and some took place under flags flown at half staff, as ordered by Oregon Governor Kate Brown. 
She ordered public institutions to lower their flags at 11 a.m. to sunset uh, to honor George Floyd, who died May the 25th, along after rather he was restrained for nearly nine minutes by a Minneapolis police officer who knelt on his neck. Uh, he was also laid to rest by families in a by his family in a homegoing service or services yesterday. In Seaside, about a dozen people, uh, some carrying signs that read Black Lives Matters, observed eight minutes and 46 seconds of silence Thursday afternoon at the turnaround at Seaside. In Ontario, hundreds of people gathered for a Black Lives Matter protest at 6 p.m., Thursday at the Albertsons parking lot in the, uh, the in the city. The group marched to City Hall for a vigil for Floyd, where the protesters listened to speeches from people, including protest organizer Charlie Gonzalez. In Astoria, more than a dozen people stood in front of the post office, um, uh, according to the Astorian. Warrington High School uh, student Alejandra Lopez, 16, organized that protest. In Newburgh, a Black Lives Matter protest took, per- took place rather Thursday night in Newburgh. Um, the Newburgh Dundee Police Department tweeted, this was a very enjoyable and well-organized event. In Eugene, around 300 people gathered to protest police brutality. The group started at the federal courthouse in Eugene before marching to the Whitaker neighborhood, according to the Register Guard. And here in Portland, protesters continued throughout the city at locations such as Revolution Hall, Pioneer Courthouse Square, and a city-owned green space at Southeast Stark Street and 12th Avenue. Portland Trailblazers star Damian Lillard marched with a crowd as they walked toward the Morrison Bridge. By all accounts, this was a peaceful expression of protest. Meanwhile, President Trump declared Friday that jobs are coming back on the heels of a surprise labor report that may indicate the start of an economic recovery with historic job losses, as he also upped his demands on states to lift lingering coronavirus-related lockdowns. We're bringing our jobs back, the president said during an upbeat uh, set of remarks to members of the media in the Rose Garden. We're going to be back there. I think we are actually going to be back there higher next year than ever before, end quote. He added in reference to uh, predictions that the economy could eventually bounce back to where it was before the pandemic. We've been talking about uh, a five. This is far better than a five. This is a rocket ship. Hmm. Maybe he meant a V. (laughs) I'm not sure that Roman numeral V is a five. So we'll just leave it at that. The president also uh, signed a bill giving small businesses more flexibility with uh, paycheck protection program loans. He said the legislation would essentially um, help restaurants, hotels and other businesses. The president also thanked Democrats for cooperating on getting the PPP bill through the House of representatives. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show for the next couple of segments. We're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. So stick around. James Blend is going to join me, and I'm sure he'd love to have you with us as well. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, taking a look at the lighter side of the news. Joining me, James Blend, where he is remotely located at his home. Hey, James. How you doing? I'm doing all right. It's Friday, so you can't go wrong with that. It's just unfortunate not to have another three-day weekend, but hey, you know. Yeah, I kind of enjoyed that, I have to admit. I did, too. But but we've had nice weather the last couple of days, and I understand we're having rain most of the day tomorrow. Yeah, we had uh, it hit 91 yesterday, I think is what I yes. saw. Um, and uh, it, it's funny, I walked out in the backyard last night. We set up yesterday afternoon, I should say. Um, after we finished doing the show, and uh, my daughter was playing in her new pool, and I'm celebrating just, her birthday. Celebrating her birthday with her birthday pool, amongst other numerous <laughs> birthday gifts. 
But um, I walked out immediately and went, yeah, this feels like the warmer than the 85 or 87 they said it yeah. was going to be. And I looked, and I'm sure enough, we're over 90 at that point. And today we're coming close to it, and tomorrow it's going to be in the 60s. So there you have it. Yeah, you re- really don't know what's going to happen in um, in Portland from one day to the next. Especially that, you know, the... the uh, of course, I'd have to look at the calendar, but... Uh, no, uh, it be a little too early because I say a weird, wet, cold, rainy Saturday at the end of May, early July usually is about uh, <laughs> Grand Floral Parade time. Yeah, really. <laughs> and it seems like Grand Floral Parade weather tomorrow, but... Uh, but no Grand Floral Parade. But no Grand Floral Parade. Yeah, that's kind of sad. It's, they you talk- know, it's, it's weird. It's just kind of weird. I think they're trying to do something virtual... Yeah, I it's saw that where you each do, everybody, they're encouraging to do their own personal in front of their house parade and submit it or something like that. And it's like, I, I appreciate the sentiment to that, but I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not in that boat. I'll put it that way. Yeah, and I'm not on that float. My house. Yeah. Well, taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news, you know, earlier today I went to the office and I was planning on staying and working for a while, but we ran out of ink in the printer there, so I had to rush home and use ink here. But then I ran across this article that reminded me of just how anxious one can become if you weren't prepared for a shelter-in-place order that sent you home and away from your uh, your workspace. Uh, one uh, worker was uh, has been lamenting for some time about a banana that's been rotting at the desk in the drawer during the coronavirus shutdown, making the employee uh, feel anxious. Now think about it. You have a banana, you know it's there, but you can't go back and get it. Now I was able to go, but not everyone has that freedom. With millions throughout the world working from home with the uh, coronavirus, uh, one thought likely absent from people's minds is what perishables left behind might be rotting away in empty offices. Now do you think you have anything that you left behind, James? Uh, At the office? Uh, Yeah. You know, actually each time I've gone back, because I've worked from the office a couple times, um, actually twice, I think, and um, uh, going back in a week and a half or so to do it again. But um, I have actually grabbed a couple items each time uh, just to bring home. Some of it was uh, stuff that was just like, yeah, it's just I could use that at home and might as well use it. While, like One of them is I keep a thing of sugar at my desk in, in a cabinet so that uh, I'm not uh, hijacking everybody's sugar when I make my giant cups of tea every morning. <laughs> uh, so I was like, well, it's just more used to me at home right now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, apart from that, there wasn't anything other than, um, you know, of course, we've been running the classic interviews um, throughout this uh, COVID period uh, when uh, when we've had less availability of guests. And uh, I, on the last day we were in the studio, put together on a, on a little USB drive three and a half years worth of Georgine Rice shows so I could easily access it. Yeah, I left it in the USB drive of my computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, the so, good news is it doesn't rot. So that, it, it doesn't least... rot. It does. <laughs> I I did get it back. Uh, I I grabbed it a couple weeks ago, and I was able to work around that particular little humorous moment. But there wasn't even anybody I could say, "Hey, can you drop that in an envelope and send it to me?" It was just it was there. Well, you have my sympathies. I could literally access it remotely. I just had to, you know, just slowed everything down. Hey, I uh, wanted to mention, you know, Oregon State Parks are announcing their first list of campgrounds to reopen this spring. That's pretty good news. People can actually 
camp again. So there's a there's another side to this whole you shelter know, in place. I, I may be an in 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 uh, you know indoor pet, um, and you know definitely questioning that at this point. I can't wait to get outside and be outside right now. But I, I do have to draw the line at camping. I'm, I'll let the other folks have it that really want to be out there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I love camping. And I knew uh, when I married Dan Rice, he's not a camper. But I was convinced, as sometimes women are, I was convinced that if he went camping with me, that would change everything. Uh, you know, I'd make it comfortable for him. I would have a, you know, one of those air mattresses. It would just be a, a wonderful experience because he'd never camped with me. So we get married. I'm thinking we're going to have a life of camping. And it was one of the worst experiences of my life because he couldn't get comfortable in the tent. His head stuck out one end, his feet out the other. Uh, he couldn't get comfortable with the air mattress. The ground wasn't level or <laughs> comfortable. It was just the worst thing. I think that may be the one of the last times I went camping. And we were just married a you know, a couple of years. I, I love to camp. I love the idea of hiking into a place and camping where, um, you know, you can't get anything. It seems like the food tastes better. Every, everything about it is just lovely. But camping I, is know, not uh, gro- something we up, do. Growing up in New York, there was kind of a rite of passage when it came to camping. Inevitably, what would happen is on, on every you know Saturday afternoons in the spring and summer, you would get dragged with your parents to garage sales. And you'd find a tent. And you're like, Mom, Dad, i got to have that tent. It's only 10 bucks. Get me the tent. Um, and so, okay, we'll get you the tent. You know, and inevitably that night, that night, you got to sleep in the backyard. you got to sleep in the backyard. And so you get in the tent. You spend the night in the backyard. By about 1130, you're back inside in your bed. And the following weekend, your parents are having the garage sale. And guess what's out there? The tent. <laughs> yeah, well, it's there is the, that. It's the circle of life. But, uh, yeah, my... Um, my lone camping experience, I think my wife also thought she was going to make a convert out of me, and it, it we, we didn't do the tent. She, she knew better. She, she, um, she went with a yurt, and oh, I, the, my constant complaining about no Wi-Fi, I think, really just got to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dan's constant groans, that did it for me, uh, for me as well. But get me, oh, get I me, did... a, get me a, hot, you know, a nice motorhome with uh, Wi-Fi and, and satellite TV and yeah, I'll go camping just about any day of the week. <laughs> you go glamping. Well, I did camp with my nieces and nephews in the backyard, and that was always fun. Um, they were little, and, you know, you're in the backyard, and I, I had a fire and tried to make it as much like a camping experience as I could. So that was my camping fix. And I have a couple of great nieces, and uh, one niece, one nephew, that I'm looking forward to initiating in the backyard at some point as well. So, yay. Um, You know, this uh, coronavirus has impacted the whole world. And one Peruvian mayor who had imposed a stay-at-home order on everyone else, well, he didn't follow that order. We're seeing examples of that here as well. But this Peruvian mayor actually posed as a corpse to avoid being arrested for flouting coronavirus lockdown that he himself had imposed. Well, this is the mayor of a town in Peru. He posed as a dead coronavirus victim by lying in a coffin while wearing a face mask to avoid being arrested for violating the lockdown he imposed. Um, He was out drinking with friends on Monday night when he allegedly played dead to throw off cops who arrived to bust the party up, defying the public health order. So not only was he out, he was actually uh, engaged in uh, partying with people in close proximity. Uh, Again, something that he himself had forbidden others to do. So I suppose uh, this lockdown urges people or or causes people to do very strange and uh, unnecessary things. 
Yeah, not, I mean, and I, then I there's, want to get out, but that's not on my list. Yeah, to lie down in a coffin as a corpse to avoid being arrested. I think I'd rather be arrest, arrested. Well, maybe not these days. Another story. Uh, three young uh, Bolivian boys were hospitalized earlier this month when they were stung by a black widow spider while attending goats in a small Bolivian village. Uh, that's a report we'll talk about when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll tell you why these boys allowed themselves to be spider-bitten. You'll understand in just a few moments. Hey, we'll be back in a few minutes, so stay with us. We're having a look at the lighter side of the news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show as we take a look at the lighter side of the news. James Blend is helping to do just that. I mentioned just before the break that there were three young Bolivian boys, emphasis on young. They've been hospitalized this month when they were stung by a black widow spider while tending goats in a small Bolivian village. Well, I suppose it's not altogether surprising that they were inadvertently uh, stung by a spider, but they thought the bite by the spider would give them powers like comic book superhero, super, uh, rather Spider-Man. The boys were 12, 10, and 8. Well, they still are. Um, They're from a town in the Andean region, uh, and they approached the spider. They approached the spider earlier this month. They poked it with a stick. According to the epidemiological um, chief of the Bolivian Ministry of Health, uh, the first symptoms appeared within a few minutes. Their mothers rushed them to a local health center. Their health didn't improve, and they were transferred to a hospital in in another town. When the boys failed to improve overnight, they were taken to the children's hospital in La Paz uh, with muscular pain, sweating, fever, general tremors. Uh, After administering a serum uh, against the bites, they improved until they were uh, discharged Earlier this month, the Black Widow is not usually aggressive, but of course the boys, they initiated the contact, hoping that they would emerge with superpowers just like Spider-Man. Wow, kind of explains why they put tags on pillows that say do not remove because it has all that information. People need to be told don't do virtually anything that's going to hurt them. Some people just don't uh, don't get it. Did you ever do anything foolish to try to gain superpowers? Uh, you know, I, I, I can honestly say I didn't. I certainly didn't do that. Um, no, I, mean, I once I, overheard a, an interview with Kirk Douglas. He had that deep uh, dimple in his chin, and I always wanted dimples. And he said, oh, yeah, I took a razor blade, and, you know, I um, made I gouged out my chin. And I came this close to doing that with my cheeks, thinking I could give myself dimples. Fortunately, um, I didn't go that far, but I also wanted braces, and I tried to put safety pin in my teeth, so I wasn't that bright a kid, apparently, but I, mean, <laughs> I, I didn't I, do anything. I, I will say, ultimately. I probably was like most boys at some point or other. I jumped off something trying to see if I was Superman, but um, I don't think it was anything more than like a picnic table in the grass or something like that. <laughs> I was kind of I was kind of cowardly I, in, in, in searching for my superpowers. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you survived it all. Well, in Bali, they have a zoo, and they name that baby giraffe Corona. I'm not oh. sure why anyone would choose that name for anything that they cared about. Well, the calf was born in April to Mother Sophie and Father Matadi, uh, joining two other siblings at the Bali Safari Park on the Indonesian Holiday Island. A video, uh, video that was released by the zoo showed the calf being uh, born in a small enclosure. She was born during the COVID-19 pandemic, so that environment minister named her Corona. The zoo spokesman said Corona is healthy and is still breastfeeding. Uh, we'll keep her under observation for three months 
I would think in total isolation with a mask on, but the Bali Safari Park has been closed to visitors since late March as part of efforts to stem the spread of the virus after which the little creature was named. Wow. Well, this might be a good idea for you, James. You're a dad. Uh, One dad turned his entire house into a giant ball pit for his kids who haven't been able to visit their favorite playground. His entire house. Oh, He's no stranger to finding creative ways to entertain his children. He's a dad of four. He's based in the UK. He's been running the YouTube channel Dad vs. Girls for two years. He uses the channel to showcase the antics he uh, gets up to with his daughters. He told Insider that it's a combination of um, uh, his love for making films and videos and passion for his family life that led him to create the channel, which has nearly one million subscribers at the time of this reading. Well, he and his wife, Sarah, and their four daughters, Chloe, two, Sophie, eight, Grace, 12, and Casey, 14, have been staying in their home since March. Well, one of the... um, uh, one of the girls has asthma. Another has a an immunocompromised uh, system. So they decided it was the best uh, thing to stay at home as much as possible. But keeping the kids entertained was something of a challenge. So he also took his kids to the indoor playground before the pandemic, particularly because of the weather there. It's unpredictable in the UK. And decided he was going to replicate one of the uh, attractions there and literally filled his home with 250,000 plastic balls. Um, Condor hired them. Uh, He's renting them, uh, ensuring there were enough uh, so that even an adult could dive into them. Uh, He had them placed throughout his house, 250,000 of these little plastic balls. Are you in? Uh, if you want to buy the balls, I'll do it, but no. <laughs> well, he only rented them so that there's a better, I'm hoping that they brought them in and will take them out again, but we'll see what happens with that. But there's a dad who loves his enough, daughters. I already have enough stuff on the floors thanks to the child. I think that, uh, <laughs> yeah, although I will say we do have a sunken living room in this, in this house. So, uh, it, it kind of is almost a natural ball pit. Um, well, there you really go. I can get a number for you if you want it. Oh, yeah, there you go. A little seven-year-old boy in North Carolina threw a personal prom for his babysitter after hers was canceled. You're never too young to plan and then throw a prom. Well, this seven-year-old North Carolina boy showed his nanny how much he really meant, uh, she meant to him by throwing her a private prom. He was reportedly inspired to hold the socially distant dance after the COVID-19 pandemic upended the young woman's original prom plans. Curtis Rogers went two months without seeing his nanny. She's really a babysitter. Uh, Due to the coronavirus, uh, Rogers described her as one of the best people I've known, and it definitely shows. Well, after Chapman's prom was canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic, she was understandably upset. But Rogers, the seven-year-old, invite lifted her spirits, even though she was momentarily saddened after finally putting on the dress that she was supposed to wear to the actual event. I was kind of like bummed putting my dress on because I was sad, she says. I don't get to wear it in my uh, to my senior prom, so there's another disappointment. After leaving it and having that time with him, because it was the first time I had seen him in two months, it was like really fun, and I'm really glad that he did it. Well, Rogers was a complete gentleman from the start. First, he was waiting outside when she got there uh, with a pool noodle, uh, and then he led her into the backyard He had all of her favorite foods and everything. I could tell he put a lot of thought into it. Chapman says she was initially sad when putting on her dress, but he helped her. Um, 
Her mom shared pictures from the evening on Twitter. The post received about 12,000 likes. He was wearing his full uh, suit. It looked like a little tuxedo. Um, He describes his uh, nanny as someone that he cares a lot about. His mom told ABC 11 that he was very excited and wanted to make sure everything was just right and uh, get his suit on and pick out the bow tie that matched her dress and so on. It was really cute. He was really excited for it to start and make sure uh, he was ready to impress her. So it's there were actual pictures along with the story. It is the cutest little thing, this seven-year-old. Um, and they were socially distanced, although I think at one point they did some kind of a dance, and I don't remember how they did that, but just a really cute thing. The little seven-year-old wanted to make sure that his babysitter wasn't too disappointed having missed her prom and apparently now her graduation as well. Uh, did you go to prom, James? I did not, actually. I, my senior year of high school, I was in uh, um, taking college classes, so I kind of had... Oh, uh, you were too smart to go to prom. I, well, I was too not present. I found out about it after the tickets had finished being on sale. <laughs> ah. So there you have it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure the... Uh, I'm sure that, you know, I, I, don't, I will honestly say, though, I did get to go to prom eventually um, about... Oh, that's right, with your wife. Yeah, about seven, eight years ago, I guess it was. Now. As a chaperone? As a chaperone, and I can honestly say, yeah, I don't feel like I missed much. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't translate well once you're past, you know, your early you teens. Know, they say it was it, if, it, if, uh, if it's too loud, you're too old. I was definitely too old. <laughs> well, a 13-year-old boy who's not thinking about prom has become the youngest person to ever graduate from a California college after earning four associate's degrees in two years. Jack Rico, 13, enrolled in Fullerton College at age 11, is set to graduate Wednesday in a special drive-by celebration in uh, La Mirada after the traditional graduation ceremony, of course, was canceled. Fullerton College said the teenager is the youngest ever graduate from the school, you know, teenager, you don't think of a 13 year old as a teenager, but, you know, technically he is. He uh, accumulated four associate's degrees from the school, now headed to the University of Nevada for a full time or a full scholarship. He said he's planning to pursue a bachelor's degree in history, but he doesn't expect that to be the end of his education. I'm 13, so I don't want to rush everything, he says. I'm still trying to figure it out. I just want to focus on learning right now. That's what I love to do. Well, congratulations to the little brainiac who, uh, at 13, graduated from Fullerton College. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, most of us have been sheltering in place for more than two months now. There are some areas that are opening up. But how do we know how we're doing? What's the status of the pandemic? Well, my next guest says that moving forward, testing data is going to become important to contextualize the infection rates. How do we interpret what's happening and understand uh, what we need to do moving forward? Well, joining us to talk about that is Norbert Michel. He's the director of the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. And I so appreciate your joining us to help us better understand how we might um, interpret events as they uh, develop moving forward. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I think one of the issues that many of us have questions about is testing and how testing data influences our understanding of what's happening. The more tests there are, the more likely cases are going to be identified um, linked to the COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about testing and how important that may or may not be moving forward. 
Well, it, it, that's true. It's very important. Uh, it helps them. It helps us identify who does and doesn't have it, and therefore deal with the problem in a very targeted way, instead of just sort of saying, "Oh, okay, everybody stay at home." Uh, so it's very important to get that data um, and 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 deal with the cases that we find directly. Now, I know that your colleagues, you and your colleagues at the Heritage Foundation, have built a tracker that uses publicly available data to provide some basic information on a county-by-county basis about the disease. Describe that resource and how it helps us understand whether or not uh, the the pandemic is spreading, progressing, receding, and uh, how we can better understand what's actually happening. Sure. uh, We do. We have a tracker, and it it uses case data. So it's updated every couple of days. Uh, and it uses daily cases on a county level, and we track the rate of well, we track the number of cases uh, each day and cumulatively, and we calculate the rate of change in the new cases every day um, and look for a trend. So the main driver that you see on the map is whether the trend in new cases is flat, increasing, or decreasing. Um, but you have to go further than that because you might have a county that has an increasing trend, but it might only have, say, five or six cases in the last 14 days. Uh, so we provide that information as well, where you can literally see the actual raw number of new cases. And then we tell you whether uh, the, the, the total amount, the cumulative amount of cases in that county uh, all the way back from January through whatever the most current day is, uh, right now, June 2nd. Um, we give you the population in that county, and we give you the cases in that county as a percentage of the population, and we rank that throughout all 3,100-something counties in the U.S., and we tell you if it's a low or high population density area, uh, which, you know, in, in, at least on the East Coast, seems to matter. And... Um, you can pick any county you want. <laughs> so uh, all counties and Washington, D.C. are all on the map. Um, and you can learn quite a bit about how the things how things are progressing in your county. One of the things that I found surprising that the uh, tracker revealed was that certain areas have seen a disproportionate amount of cases, a disproportionate number of cases. Uh, and you focus on 30 counties that have registered the most deaths from COVID-19 account for 45.7% of total cases, but only 15.4% of the population. Now, that's an interesting revelation. Any explanation as to why that is the case that might help inform us as we move forward and o- things open up further? Sure. Now, now that's uh, that. technically you won't see that information uh, in, a, in a very discernible way on the tracker, though. So I just, I just want to mention that. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, but if you look at the overall statistics in the U.S., what you see is from the very beginning all the way to now, everything, total cases and total deaths, are highly concentrated in the Northeast. Um, and a lot of it emanates from the New York, New Jersey area, which are two of the most dense population areas in the United States, or the two most. Um, and... Uh, you also had a very large amount of nursing home deaths in those areas, 
there were some bad nursing home policies uh, where if a patient was from a nursing home, the hospital sent them back to the nursing home without extra precautions to make sure that the disease didn't spread within the nursing home. Uh, That was a tragic mistake, um, staying out of the politics of it. But that's but that happened. And um, if you look, you know, I, I couldn't I can't give you the the absolute 100 percent cause. But I can tell you that those counties in the northeast are all connected by the commuter railway system uh, between Philly and Boston. And you've got an enormous amount of international flights coming in and out of those areas, uh, as well as the commuter rail. So it kind of makes sense that, 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 that that's what happened there. Um, but if you look at the, the, the rest of the U.S., um, you can find just about the same amount of the population, same share of the population, has actually one or no deaths. Uh, so it's a very, very different picture outside of the Northeast. Yeah, yeah. And, and that holds even for, the, even for the West Coast. It's very different. Than on the than on the northeast. Uh, we talked about the nursing home population and the fact that they may be underreported. Another population that you mentioned in the uh, a column that I read recently by the Daily Signal is the prison population. Do we have a clear understanding yeah. of how this pandemic has impacted that population and whether or not those numbers belong with the general population? So the answer to your first part of your question is no. We do not have a clear picture. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> um, and and it's it's I, I would say maybe even worse in terms of the fuzziness of the picture is maybe even worse than the nursing home picture. Um, but states have not been uh, all states are not and counties are not releasing this data in a uniform manner, and we really don't have an idea. But we do know from some some counties that have released the data, uh, some states that have released data, and some independent studies that the that various prison populations have have found a very large percentage of inmates with positive cases, and then whether that whether that group goes into the reported case total or not um, is at this point you know practically anybody's guess. Um, I think in many cases it has not, and in some cases it has, um, and in most cases you have to ask. Uh, health officials, if they're doing that, <laughs> so it, it, that that is something that needs to be sorted out. Are you optimistic moving forward as uh, counties and states and different areas across the country are opening up that there will be sufficient attention given to testing to interpret uh, the pandemic and its impact in certain areas, um, whether it's pr- progressing or receding. Are you optimistic that we're at least preparing to move in the right direction with testing? <laughs> um, well, I think in, in terms of the the testing availability, I think yes, I'm I'm optimistic there. I mean, we we definitely have improved our ability to conduct tests. Um, we are conducting more tests, and that's and that's on an on the, on an increase. You can even get home kits now, uh, mailed to you, emailed or mailed to you, shipped to you directly. So in terms of being able to test people, yes, I, I, I'm optimistic uh, that we're going in the right direction. 
But in terms of uh, uniform reporting and careful reporting of the data, I'm not, no. Uh, we had an incident here in Virginia just this last week where Fairfax County set up a testing facility and it was, you know, one of those sort of free, quote unquote, free testing. And 80% of the people who came for the testing were from Maryland, so, <laughs> which, which is fine, except that except that if the county reports that they gave all these tests, it makes the data look very different than if yeah. those people were from Maryland. So um, that that's still, all that sort of stuff really does need to still be sorted out. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll sort it out. <laughs> Norbert, Michelle, yeah. thank you so much for, for talking with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, and one other question. How can our uh, listeners mm -hmm. access this tracker? Oh, sure. Um, if you go to the, the Heritage website, uh, we have, uh, let me see, I know the URL is a bit, a bit long, um, but we have a dashboard set up and it's, it's got all of the COVID stuff that we've done, including the tracker. So if you, if you Google Heritage data visualizations, you'll, you'll get to that page. Yeah, it's a pretty easy page to, to navigate, so I think people will be able to find it. I appreciate the work that you've good, done good. and for uh, talking with us here today. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thanks again. Hey, I hope you have a great weekend, and we'll join us back here on Monday. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.